I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation unlike any we've had on the show before. And after nine years doing this podcast, that's saying something. With a special disclosure, no less, the opinions and views of my guests later on in this episode are their own and not necessarily the views of myself or Convo by Design. That being said, in a few minutes, you are going to hear from Jamie Rummerfield of Woodson and Rummerfield's House of Design, as well as SIA, Save Iconic Architecture, and Beverly Hills Council member John Mirish. We're talking about an article I was reading the other day, and I wanted to follow up with a special episode of the podcast. It's another Los Angeles mansion on the show that you're going to hear about. It's on its slow march to its demise potentially. This one is in Beverly Hills, as many of them are, and it's the same story. Someone with more money than almost everyone else comes in and buys a property for which he potentially has other intentions than just living in it as is. I read this article on Dirt.com, and this property sits on North Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. The Hollywood Regency-style residence was designed by architect Carlton Burgess. And that's going to come in. Uh, it's pretty important. And let's stop here for a minute. What makes a significant or special or more to the point, what is architecture worth saving? Serious question. And one that is really hard to answer for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the rights of a property owner. They worked for the money or inherited it, whatever, it's their money. Can they not buy and do with what they wish? Well, yes, unless there are regulations and rules that prohibit it. This Burgess-designed residence lies within the city of Beverly Hills, and unfortunately, Beverly Hills was, was a little late to the preservation party, and because of that, many, many architectural gems have been wiped clean. And again, being honest here, it's an LA tradition. And every architect since the 1940s knew that going in, you build something, you design it, someone else comes in, likes the lot, likes the sunlight, the way it hits in golden hour, tears it down, starts again. Now in 2012, the city of Beverly Hills discussed ideas and later adopted a, an architectural preservation plan at a city council meeting, so this is at the city level, in that meeting, they reviewed a list of significant Beverly Hills architects, calling it, quote, a list of master architects, end quote. And the list included 150 such designers. The list was part of a recent requirement to an ordinance that the city adopted to begin preserving properties it deemed significant. It's important to note that at the time, the city was also compiling a list of original architects of more than 2,900 structures. Using their own mathematical formula, they determined that there would be under 500 structures that would be awarded with a historically significant de designation. Interestingly enough, the time for significant architecture in the city was crafted by those working in Beverly Hills prior to 1970. Fair enough. The city had a pretty solid plan, if you think about it. The list itself would be used as criteria for preservation designation and designation as a, quote, historical, a local historical landmark, end quote. 
An interesting note, the criteria verbiage states that it represents a notable work a person included in the city's list of master architects or possesses high artistic or aesthetic value. Now, that last part is tricky. Aesthetic value, to whom? And when it gets even more fascinating, uh, with some of the very specific criteria that inclu that's included um, to ordinance BHMC 10-3-3212. So, and by the way, forgive me, this, this is going to get very political, legal, easy, and a little dry, I think. But if you love architecture and you love design the way that I do and the way that I think most of you do who are listening to this show, it, it's really interesting. So A, the property meets two of the following criteria. B, the property re, uh, retains integrity from its period of significance. And C, the property has a historic value. Okay. So part one of this Number one as of the criteria, it's identified with important events in the main currents of national, state, or local history, or directly exemplifies or manifests significant contributions to the broad social, political, cultural, economic, recreational, or architectural history of the nation, state, city, or community. Number two is directly associated with the lives of significant persons important to the national, state, city, or local history. Number three, it embodies the distinct characteristics of a style, type, period, or method of construction. Number four, represents a notable work of a person included on the city's list of master architects or possesses high artistic or aesthetic value. By the way, this one is super important and it's going to come into play later on in our conversation. Five, has yielded or has the potential to yield information in the prehistory or history of the nation, state, city, or community. Six, is listed or has been formally determined eligible by the National Park Service for listing on the National Register of Historic Places, or is listed or has been determined eligible by the State Historical Resources Commission for listing on the California Register of Historical Resources. Wow, okay. So this does clarify things a little bit, and much of this criteria is kind of nebulous, but some is very clear, and there is a process and procedure in place. Quote, this list will also be used to screen incoming development and de demolition proposals and identify properties that could be historically significant. If a property is identified and the work proposed would demolish or remove historic characteristics, the City Council and the Cultural Heritage Commission will have 30 days to direct staff to conduct further analysis and initiate nomination proceedings. While the property is being evaluated, no permits will be issued and no work or demolition will be allowed. For demolitions, the 30-day review period is an extension of the existing 10-day waiting period currently required of any demolition proposed in the city, the 30-day review period for development. So that's the city of, of Beverly Hills. I, there is so much more here and I want to read it to you, but I'm not going to. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to put the, the, the majority of the verbiage here in the show notes. So you can go down and you can read all of the backstory that's associated with this. Suffice it to say, reading further in this article on um, Dirt.com, the owner of this property uh, bought it and wants to have a certificate of ineligibility issued for it. 
So what is that? An owner of, a, and I'll, I'll just read this to you and then we'll move on a little bit. An owner, any owner of a property not listed on the local register may at any time file an application with the city requesting a determination that the subject property is not eligible uh, and therefore is exempt to the provisions of this article. So the owner of this property applied for a certificate of ineligibility for this particular North Roxbury property whose architect is on the 150 list of master architects of Beverly Hills. And as you'll further hear, represents a, a, a phenomenal, pristine example of architectural style that is so important to the city of Beverly Hills, my opinion, that it's hard to understand how, the, how city staff could issue a certificate of ineligibility for this, but you're gonna hear more about that later. So if you want any more of this backstory on what a certificate means, um, the effects of non-issuance or any of this, please go to, go to the show notes and you'll, you'll read all of it. But this, this, was, this is also a very important issue to me because this is a special issue. This is a special episode, rather, of the podcast for a very specific reason. We examine what makes iconic property. We do this because while structures age doesn't make it significant, we do need to define what does. And while Beverly Hills was, was fairly, in my opinion, late in regard to a preservation policy, there's, there's history for this. You know, you look at iconic properties in the city of Beverly Hills, Wallace, Wallace Neff's Pick Fair, Wallace Neff's Falcon Lair, or Wallace Neff's Enchanted Hill. Neff took a hit in Beverly Hills. Um, according to Curbed, Los Angeles, co uh, Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen had Enchanted Hill demolished around 1997. Pia Zadora had Pickfair torn down in 1990. In Falcon Lair, the main structure was destroyed in 2006. This is all before 2012 and the preservation policy took, took place, but I think you can see a pattern here. And the pattern continues. With that, this is my conversation with Woodson and Rummerfields and Save Iconic Architectures, Jamie Rummerfield, and council member John Mirish. Enjoy. Okay, so this is a late edition. And as I was getting ready to publish this episode, I, I was checking on the Beverly Hills City website uh, in advance of the hearing on Tuesday. And I found a note entered into, and by the way, if you go to this, there's literally hundreds of pages of documents that, that chronicle 1001 North Roxbury and its, its, its journey and how we got here. But I found a note of all of the notes entered. I found this one that was note, a note entered into this fight, and I found it super interesting by architect Mark Rios, an extremely accomplished architect and landscape architect who worked on this property not once, but twice. And here's an excerpt from his letter. And you will see instantly which side of this debate uh, upon which he stands. And I think it might surprise you. Quote, I'm writing to address the potential historic status of 1001 Roxbury Drive, Beverly Hills, which I understand is currently being considered. I've had a long history with the property. I had the unique opportunity to partner with two separate owners, David Bonnet and subsequently Lisa and Josh Greer, for full remodel and revisioning projects. 
this piece from Lux magazine was a, a publication of my work on this property. I hope you know from our past work in Beverly Hills that I am an avid supporter of architectural historic preservation. I can fondly list the historic buildings we've helped to preserve and restore within the city, and we continue to work to protect and add to the city's important architectural resources. I support and applaud everyone in Beverly Hills who passionately works to protect and maintain this irreplaceable historic source. He continues, I'd like to make a few more comments to consider in this conversation. I fully support the city's urban design guidelines for this neighborhood, which I believe are key factors which give this house, other homes, and the overall neighborhood its sense of value and character. Open front yards, the position of the house on the street, the avoidance of high hedges, the limited heights of fences, the limited amount of hardscape all significantly contribute to the character of Beverly Hills. These planning ideas should be celebrated and protected because I believe it's what give the neighborhood its, quote, historical significance, end quote, not the individual houses. If a specific house remains, gets remodeled or replaced, it doesn't matter, to be honest. What's important is the character of the neighborhood, which creates the important feel and personality of this part of Beverly Hills. I applaud the Beverly Hills Architectural Review Board for all their time and effort to protect and improve your community. Their hard work and your work from the planning development departments is evident and it pays off. In conclusion, I absolutely support the designation and protection of valuable architecture, architectural historical assets within the city of Beverly Hills, but 1001 Roxbury is not one of them, end quote. So really interesting. You know, Mark Rios is no lightweight in architecture and design. But what I think is, is completely missed here is that he has had the benefit of working on this particular property, not once but twice, for two very, very relevant owners, and the Greers and um, David Bonnet. I just... I have a really hard time understanding how, with the criteria very specific, it's a historical master architect, according to the city of Beverly Hills, one of 150. The house is a pristine example of this particular architect's work in, in, in Regency uh, revival and architecture. It's in a, 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 an incredibly famous neighborhood it fits perfectly within that neighborhood. And yes, it was worked on, but it was worked on to improve it. And it was published in not one, but two major design publications, AD and Lux. So I, I find this letter as entered into, into the record extremely interesting, a, a bit counterintuitive to, for my taste, because I really don't understand that, but I wanted to point that out. So now you've got more context as this thing heats up. And I'm telling you, I'm publishing this on Monday, June 20th. The hearing is uh, June 21st. If interested, check out the City of Beverly Hills uh, City Council meeting, because there are going to be fireworks, and it's going to be interesting. And I think that this is a very interesting case and a very interesting situation, because... If this property isn't worthy 
of historical preservation and of the designation, what is? So I will reset the table and, and council member Mirish, we're, we're recording this for a very special episode of Convo by Design. And I, I actually had to interrupt you and I apologize for that, but I definitely wanted to capture this part of the conversation because I think it's so important. We're, we're talking about density. Uh, we're talking about municipal density, municipal, you know, infill projects and real estate. And we're actually talking about this because I want, we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, the North Roxbury property that's coming up for architectural review. But start again. Tell me about Beverly Hills, because I know some things about Beverly Hills, too. Like, for example, you know, back in the early days of the city, when there was a mile, what it was a mile and a half wooden racetrack, yep. right, where, where the Beverly Hilton sits today. I mean, just the, or the Beverly Hills where, where Hotel. The Beverly Wilshire. Yeah. The Beverly Wilshire. Right, right, right. Just um, amazing history, architectural history. So do me a favor, please start again. Well, you mentioned you grew up or, or spent a lot of time in Manhattan Beach, and there's some similarities between Manhattan Beach and Beverly Hills, both around 35,000 residents. Um, we don't have any great places for pancakes like Uncle Bill's, but we do have Nate now, so we have a great history of Delhi. Uh, but, but what I was mentioning is that Beverly Hills was, in a sense, a master plan community. And it was designed in a pre-car age. A lot of people like to think of, you know, well, the problem, if you will, with Southern California and Southern California cities is that it was, they were all designed for cars. And so there's something wrong with this. And you have a lot of people out there, urban planners from outside who didn't grow up here and don't understand it, who are trying to remake Southern California in the mold of any traditional hub and spoke kind of community, which I think is wrong. They also ignore the fact that um, the LA urban area is the actually is actually the most dense urban area in the United States. Number two is San Francisco. Number three is San Jose. New York is only four. Uh, so we're already pretty darn dense. We have in LA County alone 10 million people. Now um, I, I think that there you know in the city of LA there's four million people, which that's the whole population of the state of Oklahoma. So we're we're already pretty dense. Uh, but, but when Beverly Hills was built, it was Wilbur Cook, who had, I think, learned from the Olmsted brothers, the, the ones who, who designed back in the day Central Park, um, did an amazing job. I, I think that it, it holds up today. It was kind of a pick from heaven where he combined very large single family estates sort of north of Sunset, large estates in the flats from Santa Monica up to Sunset, commercial areas. Which, had, which were corridors and that were built contiguous to residential areas that consisted of multifamily and then smaller uh, single family homes. And, you know, I think he did an amazing job that holds up well to this, to this day. And, and when you have people generally from the outside who want to remake it, look at it, and, you know, they forget the fact that 65% of, of housing in Beverly Hills is already multifamily, and that over 50% of our residents are renters. So when people think of Beverly Hills, there's, there's definitely a stereotype based on you know, TV, movies, people think about Jed Clampett and that sort of thing. And that, that really doesn't reflect Beverly Hills either physically, or I would even say uh, metaphysically, because as a community, I think 
And having grown up here, we like to think of ourselves on our best days as Mayberry RFD, small town mentality where they're not six degrees of separation, there's maybe a degree and a half. And then I'll, I'll, I'll say on the other side, as a friend of mine once remarked, on our worst days, we're kind of like Peyton Place in an Ibsen play with some Shakespeare thrown in. But that to me represents any community. We're truly a community. And the fact that you have a community in the middle of a, an urban area with, you know, Southern California, what is it, 18 million people or something that you have a sense of place, a sense of belonging, that's unique, that's special. And it's one of the reasons I consider myself to be what I would describe as a communitarian. I believe in communities. I believe that um, when it comes to making policy, communities are the solution and not the problem. So that being said, and I think this is a, a great in intro to the conversation at hand. And, and by the way, this is, it's so fun because this is the first time that, you know, I will be having a, a guest join us in progress. I'm waiting for, for uh, Jamie Rummerfield uh, from Woodson and Rummerfield House of Design, as well as uh, CSA of Iconic Architecture, because we're talking about 1001 North Roxbury. And Here's what's so interesting about this, and, and it's funny. I, in writing, in prepping a, a preamble to this episode, which which I'm I'm going to be publishing on Monday, uh, three days from now, because on the 21st there is a a gathering of the the council members to talk about the preservation status of this particular property. I'm gonna I'm gonna just sort of top line it. This particular property. Is a is an older uh, Carlton Burgess designed property. It is it is a stunningly beautiful example of a very distinct type of architecture, very specific to the city of Beverly Hills at a very specific time and place. In 2012, the city of Beverly Hills, while in my opinion very late to preservation and restoration uh, landmarking and status did come up with a very interesting plan. And hang on one second, I'm going to admit Jamie, who's going to pop in here and we'll reset the table. And I can give you background on, on that. I was, uh, I was first elected in 2009 and we had no form of preservation. And actually that block a little bit, I would say is ground zero, but the 10th, you know, the thousand block of Roxbury for historic preservation in Beverly Hills. I that love it. Council member, hang on one second. Sorry to interrupt. Jamie, um, let me get you up to speed. And then while you're getting yourself together, we're recording. Um, okay. let, me, let me get, let me get you up to speed. Council member Mirish, uh, is John, we've John. just been John. Thank you. Hi, John. Um, meet Jamie Rummerfield, Jamie, meet John. Hi. It's funny. I've never actually, I've never introduced guests in the middle of an episode before, but I love it. Um, <laughs> well, so yeah, we're, nice we're to just, see you. We're just starting to talk about 1001 North Roxbury. Mm -hmm. um, John was elected in, in 2009 and uh, is catching us up to speed on the sort of how the legis or the uh, how the process started. So, John, with that, please. So when I ran in 2009, and just to give you a brief, very brief, I grew up in Beverly Hills and went to you know, Hawthorne K through eight, went to the high school. I lived abroad for about 20 years, mainly in Sweden, but also in Austria. And I moved back to Beverly Hills and uh, was very dismayed about the fact that we didn't seem to be doing a good job of honoring our history. 
including architecture. And that block, the, the 1,000 block of Roxbury was ground zero. The, there was the Gershwin house that Rosemary Clooney lived in, and, and that was lost. There were actually two of them side by side. And, and that block has, has been very historic for our city, just in terms of who's, who, who lived there. You had Lucy living on the corner, Lucille Ball, and Jack Benny next to that, and Peter Falk, and as said, George and Ira Gershwin both lived there, Rosemary Clooney, Agnes Moorhead, um, you know, Caddy Corner on the 900 block, Jimmy Stewart lived there. And that's also on a double lot house that no longer exists. Um, I was, among other things, dismayed by the fact that we had nothing in place to honor historic architecture, which as someone who had lived in Vienna and, and Stockholm and other places where it was a given, and uh, one of the things, reasons I ran is because I wanted to introduce a, a cultural heritage commission and a way to preserve historic architecture within our city. I'll remember that when I was meeting with, I think it was a group of real estate brokers and, you know, some, some are sympathetic, some are unsympathetic, but one who was sympathetic came up to me afterwards and said, you know, the joke in our circles is that preservation Beverly Hills style is taking a picture of a building before you tear it down. And that's basically where we were at. And so I did get on the council and, and made efforts to try and propose a historic, uh, uh, you know, resources commission, a cultural heritage commission, and um, got shot down numerous times. What actually was the impetus to this was there was then going to be a, a Neutra house, the only remaining uh, Richard Neutra house in the city that was going to be leveled and destroyed. And this caused a, a huge outcry from the architectural community, including Neutra's son. Um, and obviously that was something that I felt that we can and sh should preserve. Uh, but at that time, the council sort of, um, after all of this pressure said, well, you know, we're not gonna be able to preserve this, but in the future, sort of as a throwaway, maybe we'll have, a, have the kind of commission that you suggested. The good news was that someone actually bought that house who preserved it. And the other good news was that they then did follow up and we instituted a historic preservation commission, a cultural heritage commission. And um, so that was the origin of that. We have over 40 properties now that are listed. Uh, and um, you know we're, we're, we're at the point now though, where you have property owners or sometimes people who wanna buy properties who, who seek ways to circumvent it. And uh, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, one of the purposes of the commission and the rules is to try to match historic, beautiful properties with owners who are going to appreciate and love them. And to try and discourage people who just want lot value or want to tear down something from purchasing those kinds of properties. We, we've, had, we've gone through that with a Wallace Neff before, we've gone through that with you know, a Paul Williams, and to me, this is one of the most um, egregious examples of someone who should have known better, who's buying a property that, to me, again, not as an expert, not as an you know, architectural maven or whatever, but someone who I think has decent taste, to look at a property, and this is one of those cases that I mentioned to you before, of your lying eyes, and it's not just me. This, this house means so much to so many people in our community that look at it that anyone who would try to suggest that it is not historic, that it is not meaningful, that it is not you know, in good taste, that it is, is not an important part of our community, I would argue has ulterior motives. Generally, that's money. 
So that being said, and, and by the way, thank you, articulate and, and well, beautifully said, uh, I, I wanted to, and I, I really appreciate you jumping on with us, John, and I wanted to talk to Jamie as well, because I've worked with, with Jamie and Ron and Sia Save Iconic Architecture for years now. I'm a huge fan of what they do. And Jamie, for, for sake of conversation here, maybe you can um, sort of state how Sia got started. And I would love your initial thoughts too on the North Roxbury property, because we're going to dig into it a little bit. It just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Um, I am trained in interior design. I have, Ron and I have had a Tony interior design office here in Los Angeles. Um, we do projects from Beverly Hills, Bel, Bel Air, across the board to downtown LA, Palm Springs, you name it. California is our passion when it comes to design. Um, I studied at the College of Architecture uh, School of Design, graduated from ASU, and architectural history is so critical to a, a, a city's story. And um, we are also, I'm a Los Angeles native, and I've witnessed and watched the city change incredibly over even just the last decade. And um, knowing what we know, we can't stand by and just watch this desecration happen to beautiful architectural homes that have such a legacy to our cities as well as to design. This is Los Angeles. We feel that this is an art and culture um, region. The whole globe looks to LA for fashion, design, art, and um, influence. And we just fall down completely when it comes to architecture and design. <laughs> and um, that's disappointing. So for, for us, we really felt helpless in addressing these issues in dealing with the city, even the city of Beverly Hills, which is the commission is amazing. I love what John and the whole preservation commission is doing in the last um, decade, especially because I believe the preservation commission did not exist until 2012, which is almost shocking for a city like Beverly Hills that has is so rich in Hollywood history. Um, the titans of film built Beverly Hills and um, preserving it is the least we can do as far as a salute to the history of Hollywood, Beverly Hills, and the legacy it's created that has brought so many people from all over the globe to want to live this lifestyle. And so, um, yes, I wrote a letter as well to the Beverly Hills City Council. I just sent it to you too, Josh. Um, and it's, it's just, just, it's almost an embarrassment that <laughs> this is a lot, this is even being considered that, you know, being considered to be demolished. Like what, you know, I, I think any other city or country would be protecting a house like this um, at all costs. And it just wouldn't even be a thought. Like you wouldn't tear down um, what has built your um, legacy as a city. And unfortunately, Roxbury has changed so much. But we all, anyone who's grown up in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, knows the legacy and respects that very much. And it's, it's disheartening to see people, especially people who should know better, um, just want to tear it down and what comes in is not something good or even you know better it's less it's it's not even lateral it's something pretty horrible usually it doesn't even, you can't repeat 
the legacy or the history, you could never replace that. It's pretty much priceless. So at the, at this point in time, uh, in my preamble, I have already, anyone listening to this will already understand what's going on, who owns this property, what they're, what they're trying to do. Um, what a certificate of ineligibility is, uh, what the 150 names of, you know, master architects are of which this one Burgess is on the list of master architects, which is just, I, here's what I'd like to know. I don't understand how we're coming up on a appeal, a review, because this particular certificate of ineligibility was issued. How does that how does that happen? And what does what is what are the teeth behind preservation and having having a certificate or not? Well, you know, you, you said that this doesn't make sense, and in some ways it doesn't, but in some ways it does. You have some very rich people who you know drop thirty nine million dollars on a property, and they want what they want, and they'll hire lawyers, and they'll hire consultants, and they'll hire lobbyists who work with our staff to get what they want. And they'll look at the rules and they'll try to circumvent them or they'll try to massage them. And, and that's that. And that's why it's important. That's why this case is extremely important because we need to send the message that, as I said before, that our ordinances are aimed at matching people who love this kind of architecture with those owners, as opposed to people who want to tear it down. There are plenty of lots in Beverly Hills, if you want to have a house to tear down that you could. And I will agree with Jamie that, and I said this at a council meeting, that each time a house of this stature and magnitude gets torn down, it's like our community is losing a little bit of its soul. And this doesn't mean that we want the city to be encased in amber or that we're against change, but we have to distinguish between good change and bad change. People who you know say you're anti-change as if that's a bad thing, let's remember, Climate change is a thing. So it's probably pretty good to be against climate change. Uh, and, and this to me is just one of those cases. And here's what happened. Staff issued a certificate of ineligibility. It was up to me as a council member to say, I want to call this up, which I have the right to do as a council member and review that decision. So from my perspective, there are a number of failures. And, and where did it happen? Why, you know, why were we not able to find the publications? I do believe that we have some um, you know, soul searching to do to try and improve the process so this doesn't happen again. But even under the existing process, to me, it seems very clear uh, that, um, that it shouldn't have been up to an individual council member to say, wait a second, you mean that it's that house? When I saw the address, I had to do a double take. Wait, really? I mean, this is a house that my sister and many people I know who are not even architectural mavens or fans have said this is their favorite house in the city. It's built on a double lot. It, it, it's elegant. It is beautiful. It is just so harmonious and represents what our community is. Again, you know, this is one of those cases where your lying eyes, you know, I'll keep using that phrase because there, there's no way that that, that you know, if, if that isn't included in, in what we are doing to try to preserve our architectural legacy, then nothing is safe. And that makes no sense at all. And so, you know, I was grateful that the council agreed that when I asked for it to be called up and voted to have it reviewed, which is what's going to be happen. Uh, but I, I, I think we, you know, th this can't and shouldn't happen ever again in the way in which it did, where you have someone who dropped $39 million for a house and think, thinks that they can do whatever the hell they want. 
And, and that's just, I'm sorry, we live in a community. You want to go build something, go to a, an island or a desert or some someplace that's not in the middle of a community with people, with residents, which is like an extended family and with a history. So, and by the way, I, I will say this, the, um, the owner's representative uh, was invited to participate in this conversation. Uh, there has been no response uh, after a number of, of uh, invitations were sent, because I would love to know what the what the other side of this is, and I think, and Jamie, I want your take on this because you and you and I and Ron, we've had this conversation before. I am I am of the belief too that there are property owners' rights, and and I think you would agree with that. That you know, property owners do have rights. At the same time, when you come in, eyes wide open, and when you're let's make no mistake about this, when you're spending thirty nine million dollars on a property. And you have an attorney dedicated to it. You know what you're getting into. You you know what the 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 rules, regulations, restrictions, codes, covenants. You know what you're getting into. Well, well let, um, me, let me just add there because initially they said, well, you know, we weren't. You know, the the um, I think the selling agent was Josh Flagg, and they falsely claimed who is on our historic is on our cultural heritage commission. They falsely claimed that he had said it's not historic, which is not the case. There, in fact, was full disclosure that this was a master architect on our list. And as came out later, the, um, the buyer bargained down the price from, from 40 million to 39 million because it was potentially historic. So they certainly had, they certainly knew in advance. This was not, oh, this poor person wanted to buy their this lot and their dream house, and they follow the rules and played by the rules. Your, your notion of them going in eyes wide open is absolutely correct, as came out after the fact. And they tried to misrepresent it to the council, but it came out afterwards that this is exactly what happened. Which is why I think it's so important that, you know, and Jamie, talk about what SIA stands for and what you would like to see, because I, I kind of feel like cities, municipalities could benefit from your knowledge base, the, the people that you know, the people that you work with and sort of in structuring a, here's what this means. Here's what, here's what certification, certification means. Here's what preservation status means. What would you like to see happen long-term? I think that it, it is optics. You know, the first thing we realized in working on projects and estates that had such a legacy and people just didn't know is, is that people are so uneducated in architecture and that's okay, but people just don't know what they don't know. And it's a big disservice to our community as well as the buyer in a way, I'm sure, you know, um, there's a lot of history that could be shared about this house. And again, in this case, the person um, is from the neighborhood. So, you know, this is, and John, you, like you said, there was a lot of disclosure. Um, we have experienced um, people who buy houses who have no idea about the heritage or really don't care. And that's, that is not the right fit. And I think it's really important for our city to take, um, to prioritize that a little more and be more proactive. I feel that the city of Los Angeles is, um, it, it, it waits for the community to bring issues 
or a crisis even to, to the forefront of city planning. And um, even the city of Beverly Hills is kind of resting on their laurels when it comes to proactive preservation. There really should be a chief of preservation. This should be a paid position on both fronts. There should be a whole um, office for um, historic resources in Los Angeles, there is one, and there's only two employees. It's always a shock to me that in a city of millions and such a, a massive um, history when it comes to architecture, I mean, we have the early Spanish, all the Wallace Nefts, the Gordon Kaufmans, the George Washington Smiths, and these are glorious estates that would rival any other you know, global estate. They're fantastic, but they're slowly disappearing. Um, Owlwood, which is Homby Hills, border Beverly Hills, um, one of the largest estates. It was used to be on 12 acres and it's been cut down over time. But our city planner, Paul Koretz, didn't even know what Owlwood was. And this is by architect Robert Farquhar. And the, the, his city planning office didn't even know what it was. And it's, it, what, it's not landmarked. And we've written the landmark um, submission for that. So what we decided to do is start a nonprofit organization called Save Iconic Architecture because of the lack of effort by our city, um, you know, programs. And we see that the bar is pretty low and, and we'd really like to work on initiatives to raise that bar in preservation all, on all fronts of our city. And um, so we're working on um, places of significant acts because yes, master architects are important, but just like this house, there's some places you have to identify and flag them that they're just too special to lose. Um, like, you know, a lot of um, houses on North Roxbury Drive. And it's just, you know, these covenants that you want to put in place. If there was a more dedicated um, focus on that, I think the communities are very behind it. We have a lot of support with Save Iconic Architecture and we're doing it at a very, as a very nimble nonprofit, <laughs> but we do it because we care. And um, when we see an issue, we address it and bring it to light on either social media at Save I Iconic Architecture on Instagram, or um, we have events, community events at a lot of architecturally interesting places. And we help educate people about the provenance and the pedigree of what we have right here in our backyard and what we drive by every day that you might not know. <laughs> and the last one, by the way, Jamie and, and John, it, it was it was great. Was at uh, the Formosa, um, which which I thought was was a fantastic event and and a really interesting story. John, here's here's what I find so interesting about this, and it, it's funny because. Um, in the city of Manhattan Beach, I was a I was a city commissioner for six years on the library commission, going through the process of getting a you know tear, tearing down the old library, which was not historically significant by any stretch, and putting up a, a remarkable space. And I got I had an opportunity to work with a city and see how city staff um, operate and see how things work within a city organization. And, and I it's as you're saying this, I think it would shock people to, to sort of know and understand that. So someone submits an application for a certificate of ineligibility and it's a, and city staff who has no knowledge of, you know, Paul Allen having Enchanted Hill demolished or Pia Zadora taking down, uh, what was it, Pickfair? Um, it just, to, to have someone rubber stamp an application without having that knowledge of architectural significance or what these structures actually mean, that they're not just 
wood, metal, tile, and stone, and wallpaper, and paint on a on a piece of property that you can tear down and and rebuild without losing something of of social value, cultural value. What would what would you like to see? I mean, did did I first of all did I did I get that right? Is that basically how the process worked? And then it puts it up. It makes it up to someone like you to to sort of scroll through what was done. It seems backwards to me. Well, that we way, do have, we, we do have a historic resource survey, which I think needs to be updated and completed. I mean, you speaking of the library, I still uh, my heart hurts thinking of the library that we had in Beverly Hills, uh, which still exists. But when Charles Moore redid it in the 90s, he completely destroyed it. It will be known to people as Mike Brady's office from the Brady Bunch, where where you have the these wonderful mosaics on the side with books, which, you know, why did they not at least preserve the mosaics? Why did they agree to that? You know, you've got the problem is sometimes you've got new architects who think that they can improve on the old. And, you know, this was in the 90s. So we weren't even close to having a historic preservation uh, ordinance at that time. Uh, I, I agree. I, I think that there needs to be a process in place. When you think about the way in which it was created here, sort of as a throwaway, but there are some people here who are very dedicated to that notion residents and people who were on the commission and other ones who simply look at it as a hindrance to commerce, to someone having their dream house. And, and again, my point is, is that there are plenty of lots and other places you can do whatever you want that are not historic. And, and we need to be a little bit uh, more um, proactive. And I would agree with you in protecting those that we think are. And in, in making, you know, again, that's why to me this is so important because this could send the message going forward that, hey, if you have a property that is historic and you are a real estate agent, you're going to need to disclose that to a potential buyer. They are not going to simply be able to circumvent the rules and, and you know, build a spaceship or whatever they want. And, uh, you know, again, there are, there are plenty of, of lots in, in, in town where, where you can and where you could uh, start from scratch. And, and we need to do a better job. It's probably less of a problem in some cases, in some ways, in the business district uh, because of our three-story 45-foot height limit. So anything that is above that, for example, the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, if you tore it down, you could only build three stories and 45 feet. So there is a financial incentive to keep that. And in fact, that is, is on our list of protected properties, as is the Beverly Hills Hotel. Beverly Hills Hotel was number one, as it should be. Um, so I, I would agree with you. I've said during this process, we need to relook at some of the rules, you know, some technical things about that it needs to be in two publications and this sort of thing, um, because there may be instances of properties that, for whatever reasons, were not in publications that rise to the level of something that can and should be preserved. And um, my hope is that this will be a lesson to us going forward also in tightening the ordinances to make sure that those community defining properties are, um, are, are, are able to be preserved and that it's not contentious. Now you're gonna always have people who you know, are going to try to make the case this isn't historic, you know, that sort of thing. And again, in this case, there may be borderline cases. In this specific case, I can't imagine anyone who would suggest, except again, if their motivation is money. And, I will be quite honest, I was very, very uh, forthright about my opinion of the consultant who was hired by the property owner 
uh, to you know review this. And you know, you're looking at the report, and it wasn't historic at all. And it, you know, this person and I described her, and I will continue to say she's a hack, and she she was you know paid to do something, and that's not the way it should be. And you know, yes, we had a review of our own, but again, um, we need to we need to have people like Jamie and people who appreciate the you know the significance of historic properties within the fabric of the community. Uh, who, who can review this in a, in a much better fashion. Now, again, from my perspective, I made it clear, the person who wrote that report, uh, I would never trust them on anything else again. I would not, I believe they have zero credibility. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, they, they are not qualified uh, in any way, shape or form to do any reports that have any kind of credibility. And again, I think, you know, it's starting there. And when you look at the tremendous, influence uh, of, of lobbyists and lawyers and money who are basically just hired guns doing whatever their client wants, uh, there needs to be a balance. And so from my perspective asset, anyone who in this case would say that this property is not worthy, they have ulterior motives, they have hidden agendas, and most likely in many cases, it's about money because that's what it usually is about. And, and Jamie, it's interesting. Um, do you feel like Beverly Hills is number one on the hit list when it comes to, I mean, Wallace Neff certainly took a hit in Beverly Hills as have a number of other amazing, significant architects who are on this list of, of 150 master architects. But do you feel like Beverly Hills is number one on the hit list in large part because of dirt value alone, because of the, you know, this is a double lot. It's no, no, intentions have been made, but one could kind of speculate without being out of the realm of possibility. It's a, it's a huge double lot on a very prestigious street. You break it into two, you build two, you know, mansions wall to wall, lot to lot. Um, it could be, it could be a huge profit generator or building something mammoth for, for a personal family. But what does that say about the social significance of the properties that lie within the boundaries of, of a city like Beverly Hills? Well, I think it's completely out of touch when it comes to understanding a neighborhood. And when someone has these lofty financial goals and with no regard to the aesthetics or the experience of the street, um, that's pretty self-centered and it wouldn't be very, it's not appreciated on a community level. And so you have to expect that that there's going to be this pushback. Um, when, when you see cities in LA at large, Beverly Hills is a target, but Los Angeles um, at large is, is at risk um, because you have developers taking advantage of this type of approach at every level and every lot that is available and any vulnerable house or property that can be torn down, it's going to be torn down. And what we start to see is a cityscape of cheap construction, cheap white boxes with absolutely no aesthetic value at all. And to me, it's, 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 a, it's, it is, um, it takes away a lot from the vernacular of our city. And when you look at historic architecture, and we're talking again, you know, whether it's, early Spanish, 1940s, Paul Williams, 50s, 60s Regency, and mid-century modern, which 
LA is the modernist capital for the pioneering of modern design. You have Richard Neutra and Rudolf Schindler who did all their experimental architecture here because it, you could, and that's the spirit of California in a way, but that was creative spirit. What, what we are seeing now is just um, the soulless, you know, there is no spirit. <laughs> it's just financially driven, junky building and construction. And the people who are buying mansions that have pergo wood floors, it's fake wood. How can you even think, how could you pay millions of dollars for a spec house that is horrible? And this is where real estate agents, developers who claim they're designers really have no business talking about design or even selling architecture because it's a disservice to the client and it's a disservice to the community. And frankly, from the design and architecture community, where we are educated in this arena, it's it's really embarrassing and a joke to watch this frenzy happen between buyers, sellers, builders, developers of this very low bar in design. And we can do so much better. And the history that we have is beyond stellar and so um, articulate, you know, when it comes to the detailing of architecture and the gardens and the mature landscapes for it all to be torn down in one swoop, it's really heartbreaking, just like John said, to see things that get altered or even disappear that are so grand or so um, you know, wonderfully designed. Um, if people can't tell the difference and they have no business maybe buying something that does have that notoriety. And so it's up to the city and up to the design and architecture community to help educate that and make that difference. And, set a precedence. And so I think that's the the crossroad of where we are right now. And I agree in general with Jamie. I'm not sure that that's the case in this specific. I don't get the sense that this is someone who wants to, you know, build two McMansions and, and look at this as a profit center. I think this is just someone who has a ton of money and doesn't care, you know, probably would get a good modern architect. Uh, but but again, do it somewhere else. It's not worth losing that history. Um, in this case, you know, even assuming that they wouldn't build a junky kind of house, that it would be first rate and all of that. You know, there's plenty of other places where it would make sense, uh, as opposed to losing something again that has been part of the fabric of our community for over 80 years. And you know, the city's only 100 and you know what is it, 14 years old. Um, that that. You know that that's that to me is very is what is so disturbing about this. And people who think that they can hire lobbyists and lawyers to interpret away the rules and the spirit of what we are meant to do. And um, you know, I, I I think this is in its own way as important as the Neutra House, which again we only were able to keep because the person who ultimately bought it loved it, but it wouldn't have been protected. And, and I think it's up to us to do that in this case. And, uh, you know, to say to the owner, with all due respect, you, you know, there are other double lots where if you want to build, uh, you know, on 1.8 acres, you can do so where you're not going to have this issue. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but it is my hope that the architecture and the preservation community comes out at the council meeting next Tuesday and calls in and writes in and explains why this property is so important to the community and why, from my perspective, it may even rise, and it does, 
rise to the level of iconic. And uh, you know, those are that's why that's why you have a historic preservation ordinance. Otherwise, just you know, call it a day. Well, yeah. What Another is the thing point? I wanted Go ahead, to Jenny. know. That's interesting about the publications, um, interior design, and even architecture. A um, hundred years ago, there weren't very many design or architectural publications. Number one, and even over the decades after. Um, the growth of architecture and design. Archite Architectural Digest, for example, was a periodical. It featured very um, notable architecture or ar architects, and it was like an academic type of read. And so um, shelter publications uh, didn't exist as much. Interior design is a very new um, career or profession as well, maybe 80 to 100 years old as well. It's a young profession and architecture was not vogue the way it was as far as reading uh, or documenting. And so also in working with a lot of celebrity or a lot of notable uh, financial um, clients, they don't want their homes pub published. And so having something published doesn't, just because it's not published doesn't mean it's not notable. And I wanted to stress that because we work on a lot of projects that you will never see in a publication due to, you know, privacy. So I, I totally agree. Let me ask you this, because here's the, here's the point counterpoint side of this, right? To both, to both of you and, and John, maybe you go first, because I'm sure you, you get this all the time. It's my $40 million. I spent the money on what I wanted to spend. Um, I bought it. It's mine. I can do what I want with it. We followed the rules. The city issued the certificate of ineligibility um, for for whatever reason, right? And then you have the the pro the ability to bring this back and review and to process, which you did. It looks like within fifteen days you had thirty, which is so. This happens. On the other side of this, you have other cases, which Jamie, I know you're familiar with the Gabor house um, and recently sort of re maiming it for lack of a, of a better, of a better word, you know, taking the, the, the architectural significance out of the facade. What do you say to the property rights argument? Well, I, I would say you don't have unfettered property rights in general. I mean, you know, you know, they, they bought it, but if they want to build a smelting plant or a, you know, a dispensary or something there, they can't do that either. I mean, you know, that's why we do have in place a rules. And part of those rules are, and, and at the time that they purchased the house, there was not a certificate of ineligibility that had been issued, but if they had applied for it before they bought it, I would have called it up then. That's part of the process. Thank goodness there are safeguards and I find myself, unfortunately, having to avail myself of them. But I'm elected by the residents of Beverly Hills. That's part of my job. I look at it. So that's part of the process, too. So the, you know, the, the sort of thought that they played by the rules, well, well, these are the rules. And I agree we need to probably fix them to make sure that this situation doesn't happen again. But they somehow felt they could skate by by hiring you know, a consultant who was going to say whatever they want, you know, that happens sometimes there, there's big business there. It's about money. And um, this is more about money and the, the whims or the desires of a really rich property owner, 
as opposed to the community. And you have to balance those rights. I'm not saying they don't. But the fact of the matter is that if that person purchased that and wanted to tear it down and build a 10-story building, they couldn't do that either. And there are reasons for that because we live in a community. And again, I go back to the, um, you know, to, to why I'm a communitarian and that those are things that connect us. And to put oneself above that, I think, is wrong. And, you know, here's also the thing about historic preservation. Doesn't mean you can't update the kitchen. Doesn't mean there's, there's not a lot you can do. Other people who have purchased historic properties have upgraded them and gotten historic incentive permits to do a lot of things to modernize them and expand them and to do things with those properties that they otherwise would not have been able to do because we recognize the value of that kind of preservation. So, so work within those rules. Again, we're trying to provide a framework that allows these properties to be preserved, allows owners who like that kind of property to do the kinds of upgrades that they want, and also sometimes to get tax benefits if they want to you know, apply for a Mills Act uh, certificate. Uh, this was just someone who came in and as said, they knew there was potential historic relevance to it and they got a discount, a million dollar discount. So, you know, I, I don't, can't say that I feel these poor people, they wanted to build their dream house and that sort of thing. I, I don't look at it at all, but I do think that we need as a city to do more work to make sure that these kinds of situations do not happen again. And, uh, you know, you, you certainly have property rights. And as we heard from uh, Josh Flagg, who sold the uh, house initially, if this person decided they wanted to back away from it, and, you know, they're not going to lose money. He, he, Josh suggested at any rate, and I'm not a real estate broker, he could probably sell it at, you know, whereas it was sold for 39, he could probably sell it for 50 million. Now, I don't know what the market is now, but there's not going to be any fiscal loss. This is about ego. This is about someone who wants to impose their will. And again, we have to remember we live in a community and, you know, for people to put themselves in that way above the community at large, I have a problem with that. Uh, Jamie, I will offer the final word to you. I think to follow up what John said, you know, we live in a community and it's about living in a place of beauty and sharing that and making a contribution. And we like to make the world a better place than how we found it. And I hope that most people would like to do the same and you can do it um, in a way that it's, we can all coexist with the old and the new. I think most metropolitan cities are very good at that. And so really, if you tried this anywhere else, you would not be able to get away with that. So digging in your heels or fighting what something that's for the greater good of your community, as well as aesthetics, architecture, design. It's like, um, yes, I think anyone in who has a care about design, architecture uh, would agree with that. And so to put, to put up a fight and listen, everyone does have rights, but we also um, want to see the greater good for your lifestyle. This is about lifestyle and you have to live in a neighborhood with, with other people. And the way the vocabulary of a street, when you drive down a street and something is so out of place, it won't end there. That will be the pariah of a neighborhood. And so why would, I don't know why someone would want to bring that on themselves as well, because then it's, it's a disrupt in 
the vernacular. And so when it comes to architecture and design, we are a global center, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, people are so inspired by our cities and we're very proud of that. And um, so we need to step up and represent that in a, in a, a cultural way, art, culture, design, architecture, and, and raise that bar and inspire others. And that's our goal is to continue to inspire. This is great. John, Jamie, thank you both for taking the time to do this. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, John, for participating in this extremely important conversation. Thank you to all of you who are listening and subscribing to Convo by Design. And if so inclined, you're hearing this on a Monday. Uh, tomorrow, the 21st of June, is the city council meeting where this particular property is going to, uh, to come up for review of the certificate of ineligibility. So if you're hearing this on Monday, you have time to make your voice heard. And if you are interested in doing so, you can find links in the show notes. Aside from that, um, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing to the show. I hope you enjoy what you hear. And, you know, for those of you who are in the biz, remember why you do what you do and how important you are to the quality of our lives. Thank you for doing what you do. And until next time, be well and take today first. <laughs>